questions. Welcome back. We're going to talk about Homer's Iliad book one today. I call it part two, but I might replace part one because I think this lecture is going to be a lot better because we added art. Remember, in the opening lines of Homer's Iliad, Homer tells the entire story of the poem in the first seven lines. They are called the proem of the poem. We will learn about the proem in the Iliad. We will learn about the proem in the Odyssey. We will learn about the proem in the Iliad. We will learn about the proem in the Divine Comedy next year. We will learn about the proem in Milton's Paradise Lost. There's a lot in these sorts of things. Basically, they summarize what's about to happen. So what's going to happen? The two leading Achaeans. One strongest, his name Achilles. One most manpower, Agamemnon, are going to come into a major conflict like a Major League Baseball manager or coach and star player coming into conflict. That means that the team that they are both a part of is going to be helped or be definitely hurt by this conflict, this internecine conflict. We all say, hurt, of course. So there's a problem that begins this story. Very good. Here's a beautiful picture from the 19th century. That is about uh, 2,700 years after the Iliad was first sung uh, by Jacques-Louis David. And as you can see, this is obviously Achilles being rather unhappy with Agamemnon here and reaching for his sword, and so you can tell that he's rather unhappy. These uh, two ladies here, one I would imagine is his concubine, Briseis, and one is, I don't know, sometimes I think she's Hera because of that crown, and sometimes I think otherwise. I'm just not quite sure. I'd have to look it up. Uh, it's beautiful art, though, isn't it? In any case, because of their prideful conflict with each other, Many people on both sides of the war, the Trojans, who are our enemies, and the Achaeans, also called Argives and Danaans, will die. When you are a part of a war effort, and you are a major, major player in that war effort, say you're the best warrior, well, people rely on you to be on the battlefield. And in fact, Achilles has such a major effect on the battle that they have never lost the Achaeans. They have won 23 battles against Trojan allies, sacked 23 cities of Trojan allies under Achilles. Do you think you would feel pretty confident being on the battlefield with Achilles with those sorts of numbers? What is your win percentage at this point in the war after almost 10 years? Yes? 100%. It's essentially a guarantee when he's on the field. He's going to be off the field soon. How do you think people are going to feel without their lightning rod, without their, uh, uh, it's sort of like cheat code to win? They're going to lose their spirit. They're going to lose also a, quite a bit of ability, and many of them are going to lose their lives. Oof. Why does it start? It starts for the same reason that the Trojan War started. A girl gets taken from a boy. A woman gets taken from a man, though it is slightly different. Whereas Helen was the princess, or rather queen, of Sparta, and she was taken from Menelaus by a foreign prince named Paris, here we will have a concubine, remember, a slave girl, taken from the recently sacked city of Phoeba, named Briseis, taken from Achilles. My goodness. And he will be taken by Agamemnon. And Achilles will actually later make the point in Book 9 that, well, if I'm fighting a war based on the fact that a woman was unjustly taken away from a man, and my concubine, who is a woman, was unjustly taken away from me by a man, why should I stay in this war? That seems like utter hypocrisy. That's a, not a bad point, though there are, I would say, some differences in the situation. Obviously, queen and concubine are not the same sort of uh, rank or role. Keep that in mind. In any case, Perseus is Agamemnon's new concubine. Ooh, very nice. Shiny new concubine given to him from the city of Theba. Briseis 
is the concubine of Achilleus. Right here, you see Briseis, she's actually being led to Agamemnon by Euripides and Talthidius. They are two uh, heralds who actually have probably one of the worst jobs in the world because after Agamemnon declares that he's going to take Achilleus' concubine, these are the two guys that get sent to do it. Just imagine. He's the greatest warrior of all time. He's got a terrible attitude. You've seen him almost draw his sword and kill the king, and now you, kind of a punk little herald, nothing, essentially, have to go tell him that he has to give you his prized possession. Probably they all assume that he's going to do what to them? Like you would do to a bug on your skin. Yeah, smash it. Destroy it. That's exactly right. And actually they are described as shivering in front of him. And he, uh, he's actually like, be at ease. I'm not angry at you little peasants. You, you, you pawns. You, you nothings. I'm angry at the big dog. Agamemnon. In any case, remember from yesterday, Chrysus, the father of Chryseis, is unhappy about his only daughter becoming a slave. He is a priest of Apollo. He walks into the camp of the Achaeans. He says, Agamemnon, I've brought you ransom. He doesn't even just beg. He brings a ransom. He says, Agamemnon, please give me my daughter back. I want her back so badly. I'll give you all this ransom. And the Achaeans, they all say, nay or yay. Yay! Yes, yay. They say, give, give her back. This is a beautiful story. That'd be a great thing to do, Agamemnon. Agamemnon says no. And in fact, he threatens Chrysus. Bad move. Chrysus is the priest of Apollo. Apollo is a massively powerful god. And within the context of the Iliad, not only is he real, but he can do things like shoot arrows. Arrows that have plague. Arrows that have plague that then hit the animals that are then eaten by the Achaeans. Now the Achaeans have what? Plague! And Agamemnon refuses to do anything about it. So Achilleus, his strongest warrior, calls an assembly. And at that assembly, he says, we need somebody to figure out what we need to do. And since we don't know what to do, and we're covered in plague, probably the gods are angry at us for some reason. So let us summon Calchas, the same prophet who is the one who told the Achaeans at Aulis that Iphigenia had to be sacrificed. Well, let's see what he has to say. Well, the first thing Calchas says is, I don't want to say what I have to say. Achilles says, I don't know why you don't want to say what you have to say, but even if what you have to say will go against what Agamemnon wants, and he will want to kill you, I will defend you. Ooh. Not only has Achilles now called an assembly outside of the scope of command, gone around Agamemnon, now he's even sort of threatened him a little bit. Calchas, if you say something that involves Agamemnon losing something that he wants, and then he wants to kill you, he'll have to go through me. Ooh, there's tension in the air. There's quite a bit of tension, not to mention the fact that there's also obviously a plague going on, which is making people all feel pretty what? Nervous, scared, right? It's plague. I mean, you'll learn about this next year when we go through Shakespeare. Shakespeare's career was cut two years. We're destroyed of his career, where he wrote two big poems, because there's plague going through Britain. Plague's a big deal. I mean, it destroyed a third, like, during the Black Death, it destroyed a third of Europe in six years. Disease... It's terrible. So, you know, keep that in mind. It's not uh, a made-up concept. In any case, this is what Calchas says. Ooh, Agamemnon, you are going to hate me. 
But what you need to do is give Chrysus, his daughter, Chryseis, back. Because you, by insulting his priest, have angered Apollo. Well, Agamemnon flies into a rage. Two reasons. One is this. Calchas, do you only ever give me bad news? Answer is essentially yes. Second reason is he's the only person of all the Achaeans who has to give back his gift, his reward, his trophy from this most recent sacking. Well, in his mind, as king, he deserves the most. And in this case, he's going to be getting the least. You might say that this is a very selfish way of looking at being a king. Because you might imagine that why a king exists is not to receive every gift, but to be able to give every gift. Like a, uh, a sort of uh, real-life Santa Claus. Well, that is not Agamemnon's perspective at all. Not all. Achilleus says, listen, Agamemnon, you have to give her back or this plague will destroy us. Agamemnon then responds, well, if I have to give back my concubine, I need a new one. Achilleus says, we don't have them in a pen like pigs waiting to just dole them out to people. The concubines have been allocated to people. So if Agamemnon wants a new one, what does he have to do? He has to take one from someone else. Well, who's just called an assembly? Who's just summoned Calchas to give him some bad news? Who's just put some tension in the air for Agamemnon? Achilleus. You, Achilleus. I'll take your concubine. I'll take Briseis from you to replace the Chryseis I have to give away. This is not something Achilleus was prepared to hear, nor something that he wanted to hear at all. He has in his estimation, done the most work of any Achaean over the last 10 years, sacking 23 cities. Of all people who exist, he is the one he least believes himself, the one who needs to give back something that he has been given. He is the most worthy. He deserves the most gifts, is what he thinks. So he actually seems to perceive himself very similarly to how who perceives himself. Yes? Agamemnon. They both seem to have, and this is a modern way of looking at it, very big, what is that thing that we say that is your sort of self-regard? We say you have a huge, yes? Ego. Ego. That's right. I, I, I. That's the word for I in Latin, by the way. So if you ever see that, it's not ego. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, I just want to show a quick picture about that. Achilles is none too pleased with hearing Agamemnon command him to give his concubine back. In fact, he's about to draw a sword and run Agamemnon through, which he very much could do, but Hera sees what's going on. Remember that Hera's on the Achaean side, queen of the gods, queen of heaven, wife of Zeus. She says, Athena, stop this now. This will be chaos. The Achaeans will definitely lose. They will not destroy Troy, and they must destroy Troy. We need to keep Achilles from killing this man. Athena runs down, grabs her from the by the hair, and oh my goodness, I'll show you a couple pieces of art soon, but like his eyes roll in rage. He's like, who did that? If it's a mortal person, ring, ring, ring. They're, they're toast. Or, or carne asada, really. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, because you're red meat. Uh, <laughs> but it's a goddess. And so there will be no slashing Athena to pieces. And she says, listen, Achilles, Hera and I, we love you and Agamemnon 
equilibrium. Boom! That's the real moment for Achilleus. Achilleus has always looked down on Agamemnon. Agamemnon is no son of a goddess. Agamemnon is not nearly invulnerable. He's just a man, as far as Achilleus is concerned. Achilleus is half divine, except for in this moment when the gods, these goddesses, these chief goddesses, say that Agamemnon is held in equal regard to Achilleus. It's a shocking moment. He has to totally, it's a revelation. He has to totally reevaluate how he looks at himself. Because as far as he was concerned, he was more than a man. But how do the gods look at him? As just a man. And you might say that that doesn't seem like much of a revelation. But there is a very important part of that revelation. Because what is it that happens to men at the end of their lives? They very much die. And so regardless of how great Achilleus is, he will very much do the same thing that every human ever, regardless of their ability and talent, has done, which is what? Die. And this is shocking to him. It's something he's never thought about. It's almost like he's a metaphor for a young person who spent their entire life trying to become more and more gifted, to become more and more valuable to the community around them, just to realize that once they get to their pinnacle, what starts to happen? They start to fade, or they're cut down at that time. It's a very hard realization, I would say, for any human to come to. And Achilleus comes to it right in front of us, right now. Wow. All right. Is this my next slide? No. No. That one? That one? That one? Are we sure? Did we really not do that? Did I talk about that without even saying? Okay, so let's go through these very fast then. So the aftermath. After the priest of Apollo, Chris has come to Agamemnon begging for his daughter, Chryseis, back, whom Agamemnon has just taken as concubine, even though all the Achaeans want him to, Agamemnon harshly refuses to give Chryseis back to her father. I'm going to go through this quickly because I already said this. I'll let you write it down later. Chris then prays to Apollo, as I said, and Apollo sends a plague, also called a pestilence, also called sickness, to afflict the Achaeans, also called Argives and Danaeans. Know those terms. After several days of plague, Achilleus has had enough, as I was saying, and he called the assembly with Calchas the prophet to elucidate what the problem was. Calchas then said Apollo was angered at the Achaeans for their mistreatment of his priest Chrysus, and that Agamemnon must return Chryseis to her father. Oh yes, here's the picture I was looking for right here. This is very good. That's Athena obviously grabbing Achilleus' hair. Because Agamemnon and then Achilleus argue, and Athena is actually the one, goddess of wisdom, who must keep Achilleus from striking Agamemnon down by his, or, or, she keeps Achilleus from striking Agamemnon down by grabbing Achilleus's hair, which is, you know, sort of a humiliating thing, you know, think about being given a nogi, or something like that. In any case, hmm. Hmm. Agamemnon declares that if he must give up his concubine, that Achilleus must then give him his, Briseis, that's when Athena has to jump in there, and Achilleus then makes a threat, a very, very big and necessary threat. Before I tell you that threat, I should, tell, I should mention two things. There are at least two ways to read the Iliad. There's, of course, the literal narrative level. Everything that's happening in this text is just happening as it is. There's also a sort of allegorical, symbolic way to read it. If Athena is a goddess who is invisible, and she is the goddess of wisdom, and she is the one who holds Achilleus back, potentially another way to interpret this situation 
It's not as if a goddess is actually physically restraining Achilles, but as if wisdom itself is preventing him from acting on instinct. It's almost like this is a moment of thought for him, where he himself realizes what is happening and what he must do. Just something I thought I would float your way, because when we read Dante next year, we'll read uh, the Inferno, not only in the literary or the literal sense, but also the allegorical sense, and I'll mention a couple other ways to read. There's a moral way to read, and also a so-called anagogical way to read. This is what Achilles threatens. If you take my concubine from me, Agamemnon, to replace the concubine that you're losing through your own misdeeds, I will no longer come to assembly, which is where they draw battle plans, which he is very useful for, though not the best. Odysseus and Nestor are the best plan drawers. They are the most intelligent and wisest, respectively. And he also says he won't come back to the battlefield. Achilles doesn't fight. The Achaeans do not know what will happen. But, spoiler alert, they're not going to do as well as when Achilles was on the field of battle. This will put them in terra incognita, unknown territory. They will go from being very confident and assured of victory, guaranteed victory, to very much not knowing whether they will have victory. And if you are fighting every day, and it is your life on the line, that is a very different situation. Guaranteed victory, meaning life, as opposed to question mark victory, question mark life, emotionally, that puts you in a very different place. Ooh. Well, Achilles returns to his tent. Apparently, this is fine. Agamemnon says, Shoo, go away. Run away if you want. Go back to your ship even. We don't need you. He's wrong, but he's angry. He's upset. He's not speaking rationally. Achilles then does something that we'll see him do a couple times. We have an expression in our, in our language. I'm not necessarily the most polite, but sometimes you might be tempted to call a character in a movie a so-called mama's boy. Somebody who runs to his or her mother for everything. Well, such a mama's boy is Achilles. In fact, he goes back to his tent. Calphibius and Euripides show up. They lead Briseis away. They're all in tears. This will actually end up... Uh, Chrysus then will then be collected by Odysseus, and he will go sacrifice a hecatomb, which is a very expensive hundred... Uh, sacrifice of a hundred cattle, which... Only very, very rich people could do. And then Chrysus will pray to Apollo to stop the plague. So, good. The plague is going to stop. Chrysus is going to get Chryseis back. But Achilles is losing his concubine Chryseis. And the Achaeans are losing Achilles because of that. Well, they're losing more than that, actually. Achilles calls to his mother. She's a goddess, Thetis. And this is how much his favor has turned from his own people. Now, remember... He leads his own contingent of people. He had 50 ships of Myrmidons. Myrmidons are an elite fighting force. In fact, mythologically, they are two or three generations, maybe even just one generation removed from having been ants. They're supposedly so strong that they came from ants. You want to think about an ant. Ants have six legs, and they're perfectly ordered, and they can, they can pull things that are way heavier than they are. So to be compared to an ant, you think of size and scope, and it's like, I'll crush you like an ant. But think about a large ant, as big as you. Who is crushing whom, then? The ant crushes you. That's sort of like the Myrmidons. They're like walking tanks. They're studs. They're incredible. They're not going to fight anymore, either. 
they're actually going to be hanging out throwing discus near Achilleus while he's playing the harp, essentially. It's, it's a lyre. It's a sort of harp. But this is what he does. He calls his mom, and he says, Mom! I can't believe that I can't believe just took my concubine from me, and it's so unfair. You, you mom, you always said that Zeus owed you one. If he really owed you one, there's something that I need for you to do. I need you to go to Zeus, and I need you to ask him to harm the Achaeans for dishonoring me. I want you to think about how traitorous a statement that is. He is on the Achaean side. He now wants the Achaeans to be hurt because of the actions of one man, Agamemnon, their leader, and because of one concubine being taken from him. He, of course, has multiple concubines. We will see one of his concubines at the end of Book 9 when he goes back to sleep. And so he's totally turned against his own people. Now, something I want you to keep in mind is that amongst the Achaeans, his army, you would imagine he also has what? What do you call the people with whom you have affection that you spend lots of time around? What do you call them? Friends? Yes. Friends is what you call them. He has friends on his side. And so, if he is asking... for the Achaeans to be harmed, then he is potentially putting his own friends in harm's way. Do you think he thought that through? Absolutely not. Do you think that will have massive consequences for him personally? Yes. Because what do we know about Greek mythology? Yes? No one ever gets away with anything. There are always consequences to your actions. In fact, if you really think about it, that's the most obvious truth in the world. Do one thing, something else happens. It even physically is true. Newton taught us that a few hundred years ago. In any case, this is what Theus does. She flies up to Zeus. She supplicates him. How you supplicate somebody is you get on your knees, one hand on knee, one hand on chin. It is pure subservience. It is saying, if you want to cut off my head right now, you can. But please don't. And we will see somebody's head get cut off while supplicating by Agamemnon. Also, We'll also see a couple people, like, we'll see one guy get his arms chopped off and then get kicked down a hill like a log. That's actually literally how it's described. I think his name is Apollocus. We'll see it soon. We'll see it soon. In any case, Thetis says, please harm the Achaeans. Zeus says, I can't do that. Hera is my wife. Hera's on the Achaean side. She will yell at me forever. We already have tension because I've cheated on her a million times. Um, but Thetis reminds him. She says, one time, remember, you were bound by Athena, Hera, and Poseidon. And I summoned a 50-headed, 100-armed monster named Briarius, one of the Hecatonchores, the 100-handed ones, to free you. So you owe me one. And what I need you to do is go against your wife, Hera. And what I need you to do is to harm the Achaeans in order to honor my son until his will is done. And so Zeus nods his terrible head. An earthquake hits Olympus. So will his will be done. What will now happen to the Achaeans over the next several books of the Iliad? Will they lose or will they be winning? They will be losing. They will experience loss for the first time in the same way that Achilles has experienced loss for the first time. Very good. Now, the end of book one is slightly odd. We shoot up to Olympus amongst the gods because, well, there's just been an earthquake 
Thetis was just supplicating Zeus and Hera, she can always sniff out what's wrong. What she seems to see is, if Thetis has just come up to Olympus and supplicated Zeus, he's probably given her something that I did not want him to give to her. Well, Hera wants the Achaeans to win. Now Zeus is going to help the Trojans win. How is this going to make Hera feel towards Zeus, her husband? Good or bad? Angry or happy? Rather angry. In fact, she yells at Zeus. And that's, uh, that's where I want you to open up to page 89. Very quickly, please. I would like you to see this exchange. This is our last side of the day, so don't worry. I'm going to start reading just before you get there. It is page 89. I'm starting around the middle of the page. 527. He spoke, the son of Kronos, and nodded his head with the dark brows, and the immortally anointed hair of the great god swept from his divine head, and all Olympus was shaken. Earthquakes. Mythologically very relevant. We'll see earthquakes even in the Divine Comedy next year in the Purgatorio. So these two had made their plans separated, and Thetis leapt down again from shining Olympus into the sea's depth. But Zeus went back to his own house, and all the gods rose up from their chairs to greet the coming of their father. Not one had courage to keep his place as the father advanced, but so to greet him. Thus he took his place on the throne, yet Hera was not ignorant. Having seen how he had been plotting counsels with Thetis, the silver-footed, the daughter of the sea's ancient... She's called silver-footed because of the silver-white foam on the sea. She's a sea nymph. And at once she spoke revilingly to Zeus, of son of Kronos. Treacherous one! Ooh, good way to start a conversation with your spouse. What God has been plotting counsels with you? Always it is dear to your heart in my absence to think of secret things and decide upon them. Never have you patience, frankly, to speak forth to me the thing that you purpose. It's going to get really good now. And then really, really good right after this. <coughs> then to her the father of gods and men made answer, Hera, do not go on hoping that you will hear all my thoughts, since these will be too hard for you. Now, on the one level... Zeus is the steward of fate. There's this thing called fate, and it's going to happen no matter what. And he is the god that makes sure that it happens no matter what. And so, it is technically true that he has to do things that maybe other gods wouldn't understand. On a social level, however, that is not the right thing to say to his wife. That some things he knows are too hard for his wife to understand. He says, I'm smarter than you are, and you wouldn't understand my thoughts even if I told you. You think that's going to make Hera very happy with him? No, I don't think that would make anybody very happy with anybody. In any case, though you are my wife, any thought that it is right for you to listen to, no one, neither man nor any immortal, shall hear it before you. But anything that apart from the rest of the gods I wish to plan, do not always question each detail nor probe me. Then the goddess, the ox-eyed Lady Hera, answered, Majesty, son of Kronos, what sort of thing have you spoken? Truly too much in time past, I have not questioned nor pro-Jew. That's a reference to the fact that he's cheated on her without telling her about his plans many times. It probably makes him sweat a little bit, except for God's don't sweat. True, uh, but you are entirely free to think out whatever pleases you. Now, though, I am terribly afraid you were won over by Thetis the Silver-Footed, the daughter of the seas ancient. For early in the morning she sat beside you and took your knees, and I think you bowed your head in assent to do honor to Achilles and to destroy many beside the ships of the Achaeans. All right, here's a very famous response. You'll probably remember the, the remainder of it for the rest of your lives. Dear lady, I never escape you. You are always full of suspicion. Yet thus, you can accomplish nothing surely but be more distant from my heart 
than ever, and it will be the worse for you. If what you say is true, then that is the way I wish it. But go then, sit down in silence, and do as I tell you, for fear all the gods, as many as are on Olympus, can do nothing. If I come close and lay my unconquerable hands on you. Whew, what? Has he just started physical violence to his wife if she does not show up right in front of him right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're all like, <gasps> and so are all the gods on Olympus. They're all like, <gasps> and so we need some comic relief. The ugliest god, the gods are all beautiful. And this is actually going to be pretty sad because he will get cheated on because he's ugly at some point in the Odyssey. We'll talk about that. Olymp Hephaestus, with his funny-looking limp, gets up and starts bumbling around. And actually, it's very sad because, you know, these gods, they're not necessarily nice nor necessarily good. They'll start laughing at him. He starts pouring wine for everybody. And they're all like... Pfft. How could we be mad right now? This guy looks so ridiculous. But what he does is he gets between Hera and Zeus. He says, Hera, remember last time you guys got in a fight? And I got between y'all to try and, you know, protect you. And then I got thrown off Olympus. I fell for ten days. And now I have a terrible limp. Two reasons why Hephaestus might have a limp. Birth defect, sadly. Or because he got thrown off Olympus by Zeus once. In any case... He is defective as a god, though he makes the most beautiful things. He will make beautiful armor for Achilles, a beautiful shield that we'll talk about for an entire day, and he made all the homes of the gods. And so, though he is not physically beautiful, he can bring beauty into existence. In any case, he gets between he uh, Hera and Zeus. He pours nectar for them because they don't drink wine, because they are not physical creatures. They drink nectar. They eat ambrosia. Hera and Zeus maintain their peace. And that's how book one comes to an end. Any questions?